This time on the Roll Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. I stole quite a few cars. <laughs> the next morning, we go down the road, and a couple of cops light us up. Well, we're not about to be pulled over by a couple of cops on Richmond Terrace in Staten Island. We haven't even gotten out of the state. Jeez. We just, boom, bring it down. I swear to God, we were doing well over 100 miles an hour. I mean, we were. Just the two of you. Just the two of us flying down the road. Pretty soon, cop cars coming out of every street, every angle. It must have You're four. so lucky you didn't get killed. We were lucky. And so, Freddie's driving, and I'm looking behind us, and I'm, da da da, Freddie, you gotta get away. Make that left turn. Make that left turn. And he goes, and boom. He wears black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Right Radio. His name is New York Mike, and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio on New York Mike. Roll Right Radio with New York Mike. Yeah, baby. I'm New York Mike, and this is Roll Right Radio. How you doing? Hey, how are yeah. you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you again. Yeah. Did <laughs> you have a wife. nice weekend? Uh, so far, it's been a great weekend. Okay. Yeah. Good. And, and yourself? You doing yeah. Good? The storm got fixed on Friday, right. so she's not been feeling well, so I've been storm is about nine months old she no. was born november 22nd right she's 11 months oh my god time yeah. goes by the kids get they just grow so <laughs> thank god we don't have to put them through college oh my god well we have to put them through dog training school yeah. for crying out we loud broke if we had to put them through college oh man this is so crazy. today i wanted to see if we could talk just about you today just about like, me. When a lot of people just don't know, like all your accomplishments, all the things that you've done throughout your life, and how you got to San Diego, and how you got the name New York Mike. Obviously, I think because you're from New York, right? Uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> but how did it stick? I always wondered that. Tell that, people how you got the name New York Mike. I'm not sure, you know, because when I think back, I was stationed in Mississippi. 1963. I wasn't and even born. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's funny. So I'm stationed in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I was a hard ass. I was getting a lot of fights. Right. I was just a hard ass. I won some and I didn't <laughs> win some. <laughs> I did not win all of them, that's for sure. But it's one of the reasons why I learned how to how to fight. I went down to the PAL. That was the Police Athletic League. Okay. That was the first place where and I you started. learned how to fight? I learned how to box. I went to boxing. I mean, at Kingsway Day Camp, we were poor. We how lived do in you the, remember? I remember. We lived in the projects in Brooklyn. Okay, Sheepshead Nostrum Projects. Nostrum Avenue and Avenue W. I lived on the sixth floor. You could look down. The buses would come by on Nostrum Avenue. You could hear them all night What was your long. apartment number? 6B. 6B. And my, I want to say jail number. Juvenile number? Yeah. In Juvenile Hall yeah, or in something? Hall, in Juvie Hall. In, <laughs> in Youth House, 1212 Spofford Avenue, I was in E6. Easy, no. oh easy my 6. God, really? That was for, yeah, for the older kids. So we, How we old were, were you when you got in trouble the first time? Oh, I was probably three or four. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, really. I mean, real you, trouble? Yeah, real trouble. I don't where know, you baby. I, I mean, sent away. I mean, oh, sent away trouble. I went to school in what was called the Chicken Coop in Manhattan Beach on, I don't know what street, right across from what, the Big Avenue. And there was a little schoolhouse. There was like a three little early, a three room schoolhouse with a little office. Okay. And the principal was Dr. Harrington. And she was a very nice little old lady with gray hair. And. I remember my second grade teacher's name was Mrs. Frank. And I forgot what she did or why she did it or what happened. But she I think it's because she wanted me to clean the goldfish bowl. Okay. And I threw it down the toilet. You threw the fish down the toilet? <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. <gasps> I know. I that got... was your first time in trouble? Well, it was the first time we got caught. 
Oh, but I was only God. in the third grade, so how Come old was on. I? Come so you on, I was flushed the old. fish down the toilet. I did that. Oh yeah, my I God! I can't remember why. I okay, howled. so what happened? And you then know, I got in so much trouble? trouble. I tried to burn down the chicken coop. I actually Jesus. Started. I know. I didn't even know these things. No, well, you asked me the question. I know. There's probably a few things prior to that, but yeah, you know, I was also a hardworking kid. I I did a lot. I had a job. When I was 11 years old, we lived in the projects on Nostrand and W. Across the street was Martin's Candy Store, and across the other street was Ropage. And then there were two or three other stores. I mean, Nostrand Avenue was full of stores. So I used to work at Ropage. I used to go out. Whenever there was a prescription being delivered, I'd get 10 cents of delivery, and then whatever tip I got. So I just hung around there all day. I mean, whenever I could, I got off school. Go to Rope Page and hang out and make those deliveries. Ten cents a delivery. Wow. I mean. And you it, didn't steal any of the prescriptions? No, not the prescriptions. <laughs> I took all the cigarettes I could. Oh, my God. All the ice cream I could. Didn't you say you worked at a barn, too? Wait a minute. I worked at, at Rope Page for a year or two. Well, I, actually, probably longer than that. But then I got the job up on Nostrand Avenue. There was a BZB cleaners. And it was great. Ted and his wife, they were so great. And so I started delivering for them. 75 cents an hour. Wow, you went from 10 cents to 75. 10, 10 cents a delivery to 75 cents an hour. That was huge back then. I'm working there. And it was like every day after school for a couple of two hours and, and all day Saturday. Saturday is a big day, and Saturday, Ted had a station wagon, and I would go with him in the station wagon, and he would drive up to the addresses, and I would take the stuff for the cleaning on the hanger. Mm-hmm. When I remember that sometimes it was drapes, and they were so damn heavy. <laughs> I'm this, what, 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, and I'm bringing these things in. But, you know, it didn't matter whether it was on a right. hanger. So one Saturday... I'm in the station wagon, and Ted, you know, who's, you know, I kind of try to be a little of a mentor kind of a guy, like, you know, a lot of guys are, good guys. And then Julie, that was it. Her name was Julie. And so I'm in the car. We're making the delivery. We do something. And he starts talking to me about being a, a good guy and not being juvenile, whatever it was. And it turns out what had happened, he says, the cops came to him. And brought my JD card. Juvenile delinquent. Like the merit card from school or something like that. I have never seen my JD card. But he told me they came and wanted to know if he knew that I was a juvenile delinquent. And I had this card and this record. And my record of when I was busted and brought down to the precinct and all that stuff. I, I mean, I'm like infuriated. And of course, he didn't fire me. I was a damn good worker. But it just shows you... Again, leadership, what kind of way is that for the neighborhood? I'd see these cops, and most of them were pretty friendly, except for Fox, because Officer Fox was a complete scumbag. But, you know, the other guys, why would they go to where I work and try to get me fired? It was like. Because there's always shitty cops, and there's a lot of great cops. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just. Like humans. We're all human. Exactly. There's good people, and there's bad people. and, And like I say, it comes down. Just because you're wearing a uniform, yeah. But it comes down to leadership. That was the 62nd Priest thing on Avenue U in Brooklyn, and this is how they decided to run their business. There were so many of my friends, we had this hustle and that hustle. (laughs) There were things going on. But when you have a legitimate job that you've been at for the longest time. So fast forward, okay. How old were you when you got sent to Juvie Hall? 15. 15. Yeah, that that was like serious. What did you do that you got sent to Juvie? Well, I... I stole quite a few cars. <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, I, I got great car stealing stories, but the first one that we stole is me and my friend, Freddie. And Freddie was a little older, and he knew how to drive and all that stuff. I was 14 and 15. We stole, I think it was a 47 Plymouth. Okay. You know, it was on the street, someplace in Brooklyn. We grabbed the car and... I forgot why that car, but it it was a stick shift, and it was a little coupe, and we took it, 
Um, I I lived in in the projects. Freddie lived in one of the buildings. One of the project building was almost off Bragg Street, and we drove the car down to Marine Park, and on the edge of Marine, but the other side of the street, the Marine Park, the other side of Avenue U, it was all weeds. So we put the car in the weeds, so it would be hidden, and then we take it out when we wanted to drive. But I couldn't drive when we first stole the car. How long did you hide it in the weeds? Oh, we hid it the weeks and weeks. And no cops found the car. No, 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 no. So I'm in high school, and I take this girl. And it's lunchtime, and I go, "Come on, let's go." You're not allowed at lunchtime. Come on, just come with me. I take the show in my car. <laughs> So we walked the five blocks, whatever it was, to where the car was in the weeds. We get in the car, and, the, and I hear tick, 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 and I go, oh, Jesus Christ, what's going on? And now we had enemies. and we were, There you was know, a bomb in the car? I didn't know what it was. And, and here I am, going to get a chance to make out with this high school girl that I'm like, yeah, I got my car, and the whole thing, right? Yeah. I get to the car, and I hear tick. And I didn't hear it right away. I remember getting in the car and I'm giving them my line. And I look and I hear this noise and, and she looks at me like, what's that? Tick. I have no idea. Got me on the edge of I my I get feet. out of the car. We go back to school. I somehow get in touch with Freddie. I say, something's going on with the car. Blah, 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 blah. He meets me at the car. I didn't know anything about this stuff. It's the turn signals. I know. Oh, my God. I know. So I, and he shows me. So I get in the car, and I drive. That was like the second or third time that I took the car around the block. Mm -hmm. And I'm driving the car, and he says, yeah, when you turn, you got to put on the signals. Oh, my I re God. Yeah. That's he says, hilarious. that's what that's all about. So we had that car. My God, we had it for a long time. Matter of fact, I remember the water pump went out on that car. Okay. How long did you have the car before you got caught? We never got caught with that car. Never? No, never got caught. But I asked you, what was the incident that got you to juvie? And you said stealing. Oh, yeah, oh. but that was oh, just was one of the cars car. that oh. we stole. So which car did you get caught? We stole a 57 Fairlane Ford, brand new, pretty new. You know, it was a new year that year. It was 1958. And it was a 57 Ford Fairlane, white Ford Fairlane with gold and two-door hot top. It was awesome car. So that was your thing. We stole it cars. out of the garage yeah. in a building that was right where Freddie lived. They had garages underneath. And we were headed down to Miami. So we go. That was before the Farazano Bridge was How built. old are you now? 15. You're still 15, and I'm you're 15. heading to Miami. I mean, when I had the other car in the weeds, <laughs> I was probably 14. Oh, my God. So that, that was like one car that we had, the next one there. I just remember that one because of the ticking thing that I thought was a bomb. So now we go on the St. George Ferry that goes from Brooklyn to Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And it was late in the afternoon, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. We get across on the ferry. It's like 6 o'clock, and we get off the ferry. And Freddie was maybe 16 and a half, 17, I think. I don't know. He's a little older than me. But we're still kids. I'm a 15-year-old kid. I look older. I used to get to bars and stuff like that. We get on, and we're riding down Richmond Terrace, going towards the Outer Bridge crossing that you go over to Jersey, and you hook up with the Jersey Turnpike, which I think they had back then. Maybe not. If not, it was Highway 301, whatever it was. All right. And we're going down the turnpike. It's dark. It's in October, actually. Weird? How weird? You bring this up today? It was October 10th. Come on. I swear to God. Wow. It was October 10th. Had to be 1958. Wow. October 10th. How weird. How I just realized. Weird. That's weird. Because the next morning, we go down the road, and a couple of cops light us up. Well, we're not about be pulled over by a couple of cops on Richmond Terrace in Staten Island. We haven't even gotten out of the state. Jeez. We just boom, bring it there. I swear to God, we were doing well over 100 miles an hour. I mean, we were. Just the two of you. Just the two of us. Flying down the road. Pretty soon, cop cars coming out of every street, every angle. It must have You're four. so lucky you didn't get killed. We were lucky. And so, Freddie's driving, and I'm looking behind us, and I'm 
Freddie got to get away. Make that left turn. Make that left turn. And he goes and boom, right into a car, right into the wall. We stop. I jump out of the car on the passenger side, jump over the hood of the car, and I start running, and I ran right into a brick wall. <gasps> Freddie jumped out of the driver's side and just took off. But I had to go over the hood of the car. So he got, got away, away and you got caught. He got away. I run up to the wall. And I'm, I'm up and I can hear gunshots. And they fired. I knew how many shots. I can't remember now. Just three or four. But before we left that scene, those cops had to trace where each and every bullet went. Wow. And there was one or two that they, you know, they just went over. But one went into somebody's window and hit a Venetian blind. Wow. And yeah, they went through the you whole thing. You realize day. if that would have happened today, you'd be dead. Maybe. You'd be dead. Maybe. They would have shot. Oh, maybe not. You're right. They're not allowed to shoot anymore. <laughs> so you might not be dead. Well, in any event, Freddie and I, we bring him back over, and we got our hands up on the wall. And then they, obviously, they arrest us. They take us down to the 120th precinct. My father got to come down, bail me out, get a lawyer, go to court, blah, blah, blah. And the next morning, and the reason I know it, was October 11th. We are the centerfold of the Brooklyn Eagle or the Daily Mirror, whichever was the big newspaper in Brooklyn before the Daily News, the Sunday paper that everybody got, yeah. the Sunday Mirror, yeah, centerfold, our pictures. No. Yeah. Freddie Anginito and Michael. Shelby. Uh, oh, uh, you were Shafrell. Oh. Yeah. Look like unhappy. That was the, what they said. Look like unhappy wallflowers. Yeah, after a chase on Richmond has over 100 miles an hour, da-da-da-da. And it was my first girlfriend I ever had. Well, not my first girlfriend, but the first real love of my life. Ida Troopy's birthday, October 11th. Boom, right there. <laughs> Never spoke to her again. So <laughs> and then they shipped you off to juvie. Um, went to court, and they sentenced me to Spofford Avenue till I was 16, and then to Warwick from 16 till, I, if I remember, I 21, something like that. Luckily for me, I was able to get out before I got to Warwick. The lawyer couldn't get me off. She took me, it was terrible. I forgot the case and all that shit, but it, it was just... Okay, um, so you spent how long in juvie? Uh, A year? Four, no. Four months. Four or five months, and yeah. then you got out, and then... My birthday was in February, and I got out... Soon after that, because there was a fight, you know, to keep me from going to Warwick, and it took a couple of months after that. So let's say March, so October to March, six okay. months. Okay. How many times were you in juvie? No, just one. Just I was locked up four or five times. The hundred twentieth priest thing, the sixty second priest. All for right. stealing cars. No, the sixty second was for trying to rob a liquor store. <laughs> Seriously? I'm serious. Oh, my God. I mean, look, that's uh, that's who we were at was that time. Was it survival or was it just it was, for fun? It was survival. It was, you know, this is who we were. You know, we lived in a land of mobsters and, and gangsters. All right. So you're in youth house. You get out of youth house. Okay. So you're out permanently now? Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, okay. I had a report to the Bergen Street Station in Brooklyn once a week to my probation officer, okay. whatever it was. It's probably too much, but right, but basically what one... happened was I got in a lot of trouble when I went to the Bergen Street probation thing. I walked in there thinking, okay, things are good, you know. The people that, by the way, in youth house, some of the guys, the counselors, they were pretty cool, man. They were badasses. Hines was a badass. He would paddle guys. And the other guy, Mr. Robinson was a bigger guy. It was a really nice guy. But then they would send you down to counseling. You know, you go to school every day. We had a counselor, this woman, Jackie. Her arm had big burn scars. And they were nice people. There were people in there, it seemed to me, that were doing something that they wanted to do, to work with juvenile delinquents. So you get out and they say, okay, you got to report to the Bergen Street police priest thing in the middle of Brooklyn. I had to take two buses. I expected the same treatment, and they treated me like I was Al Capone, man. I mean, you'd think that I just burnt down the local church or robbed the local bank. Wow. And I remember going in there, and I was treated like, this is bullshit. 
just angered. And then you go up and talk to the guy that you're assigned to. By the time you get up there, you've already been through this mill. And he treats you just like this total scumbag. It wasn't my expectations, and I never wanted to go back, so I never did. Well, when I never did, I got into a, a little bit of trouble. Now I'm 16, and they're trying to send me straight to Warwick, which my, my lawyer got me out of going to Warwick by right. making certain promises and setting up me going to this. So my dad, we lived in I the I was pro- waiting when you were going to talk uh, about well, your parents. Weren't well, they, like, involved in this? They kind of saw the war. My dad, obviously, working his jobs and doing what he did. The whole tragic story of him trying to be a TV broadcaster, a radio announcer, all that stuff. That tragic story I've told. And now he goes back to school, still driving the cab and working his other jobs. Goes back to school and gets a insurance license, becomes an insurance agent. So my dad was just on the verge of doing something good. I'm coming out, and I'm on the verge of going up to Warwick for the next three or five years. So he goes ahead and buys a house, 19990 buys a house in Plainview, outside of the city limits in Plainview, Long Island. And it was amazing, and I felt very indebted to him for doing that and felt at the time... So you're saying because he got you guys out of the projects... Yeah, because he had to get me out of the city of New York. Otherwise, I was going to Warwick. Got it. And, so, and he knew that, and the lawyer told him, and you know the whole thing. And I was still getting in trouble in school, and things were going on. When he did that, I had a full-time job at White Castle on East New York Boulevard. My favorite. And, yeah, I know. I, I got out of school, took the bus. It was a big bus, the other side of Brooklyn. And I worked the swing shift, for the 12th shift at the White Castle, and I've been doing that for you know a few months But when he moved. And so the day that they are in the new house, I get off work at 12 o'clock, and I go to the Rockaway Boulevard train station to get a train to Hempstead to get the Long Island Railroad to Hicksville wow. to get to Brooklyn, and it turns out there's a Long Island Railroad strike. 12 o'clock at night, I get off work, I go, I walk to the Rockaway Boulevard station, I take the train to Hampstead, that's it, no other Long Island Railroad trains. So you can't get home. So I can't get home. Now, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. I had a legendary Uncle Phil I had never met, who was a cab driver in Long Island, Phil Harris. So you called him? So I got in touch with Phil Harris, my uncle, his brother Jackie Harris, who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Did he know my grandfather? I don't think so. <laughs> but I, I, it's too late to ask now. But the growing up, Jackie Harris was a local hero playing the, all the baseball and softball games around Brooklyn where I was you know, brought up, lived in the projects. And I, I mean, I idolized the guy and wanted him to teach me how to, he was a third baseman. Anyway, his brother Phil, older brother, drove the cab, comes and gets me. What a great guy. I didn't spend a lot of time with him after that. But if I wanted to go someplace, I, I mean, I didn't have a car. I didn't have any. He said, listen, if I'm not working, you want to go to Bayville Beach, you know, I'll take it there. He was just a great guy. I got to that house at 4 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, I had to be back at work at White Castle the next day. <laughs> so I, I went out and hitchhiked on the Northern State Parkway. I don't even know how I knew how to get back to Brooklyn, but somehow I did. And then, two doors down from us, I got a neighbor named Sal Piga. Sal, it becomes my father's real great friend within days because they both play pinochle all the time. Sal's a little younger than my dad, not much, and finds out what my situation is, he adopts me. That was it. And... He had his wife, he had three kids. Not like really adopted you, just like verbally adopted oh, you. Oh, he adopted me, yeah. It was like, yeah. I no, mean, but I mean, I'm he had, saying he didn't legally adopt you. No, it he was didn't just do, a figure of speech. He, he, he adopted we, you. He, he put, took do, you, put you under his wing. Didn't do the paperwork. Right. But if there was anything stronger than paperwork, it was Sal's bond. And yeah, he had three kids, Jimmy, Sal, and Debbie, and his wife. And it turns out... He had just gotten out. He did five years, and 
he was just one of the most successful criminals I've ever known in my entire life. Of all the so mentors. he taught you how to be a better criminal? He taught me how to be a better criminal. Okay. He really wow. did. He really did. None of this petty stuff. Don't take money out of the cash register. Just take the whole cash register. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Are so you was, kidding me? I'm serious. This he is was, real. He was, yeah, it was real. It was like, don't just don't do anything small. If you want to do it, do it big. So you spend the rest of your life in prison. No, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was more like directing me, more or less giving me the option of being successful honestly and showing me if you're going to be anything less than this, you're going to be petty. And to be this takes as much time and effort and studying as it does to become a doctor. If you want to be a successful criminal, it takes hard work. You know, seriously, this is, yeah, did he get caught? Sure, he got caught. He made that big mistake of doing something that wasn't, but he knew this is how you be it. This is what you do to be professional mm -hmm. and not be some just wise ass trying to get attention or whatever. You want to be professional? This is how you do it. I've been very fortunate to have some great mentors in my life, beginning with my dad. But Sal was right there at the top of the list, man. Nice. It was just amazing. And he was an amazing human being. He died of cancer at 73. Just, wow. yeah, I miss him every day. So that was the pre-military thing. And of course, I remember <laughs> Sal was in the Navy. He could do anything. Shoot pool. He could run tables for hours. Play cards. I can't even start to describe. And most of that stuff, when you're on a ship, you have time. You have days. You have hours. You have weeks. So him and my dad one day, they knew it. You know, my, my being a paratrooper, that was my goal, my dream. That's what I wanted. And I'm sitting there. And they are so trying to get me to go in the Navy. He was on the USS Van Buren. The ship was bombed in the Pacific. They outfitted them with pea coats and all the warm weather gear to go to the Atlantic, sent them to the Pacific. I remember as a little kid, three, four, five years old, his friends would come over the house every Wednesday night. They'd play pinochle and tell war stories about the ship and whether his buddy Al Vasta, who served on the same ship and was the boiler man. And you'd listen to the stories and you'd hear all these great things and horrible things, but they were always said in such... Yeah. a fun way, and the underlying thing, and I say this all the time, these guys, and they were all, they had nothing. Eventually, they all interestingly became tremendously successful because they all saved the world. They saved the world. Enthusiasm for life because they came back from saving the world. Mm -hmm. And they saw the sacrifice of others for this great country, and they they were patriots, and they felt good about themselves and the country. They saved the world. Was that one of the reasons that you, because of your dad, decided to go into the military? Oh, without a doubt. Listening to these guys tell their stories and, and feel so good about themselves and who they are and what they did. Are you kidding? I, I wanted to be that more than anything. But there was no way I was going to the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> in the first place, I was... Dead set on being the paratrooper. My dad's telling me about jumping off the ship and the flames are in. You go jump in the water, the flames, you fly, you'd swim under the ship and you come out the other. Oh my God, going over the equator and all these things. And I'm thinking, you guys both know I get seasick on a rowboat. I mean, I lived on, you know, Sheep's at Bay. We lived and worked on the boats and I hated it. So clearly, you never get on a boat with me. I don't think we've ever been on a boat together. Oh, I get so seasick. I, I get seasick thinking about it. If I dream about being on the boat, I'll be puking next to the wow. bed. Yeah. All right, so, so you told them there's no way you're joining the Navy. You're going to Well, when you're school. listening to two guys who love being on ships right. in the Navy, you know, I'm not going to argue. I said, yeah, well, it sounds good. I'll think about it. I was hell-bent on what I was going to do. I always wanted to be a paratrooper. My friends, we'd hang out on the corners and get into all kinds of trouble. And the biggest discussions were, who's tougher, the Marines or the paratroopers? That was it. So I was always going to be a paratrooper. The one that down in my mind. Now, did we really know? Right. You could be a Marine and, and be, you know, I went to jump school with Marines. But There's some badass Marines. There's a lot of badass Marines, man. I was married to one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, we didn't know that. We just knew what we read in comic books and what right. we saw on posters and right. stuff like that. 
I joined the military. I go down to Whitehall Street in Manhattan to get sworn in. Now, I left high school. I was a senior. But you didn't I, graduate? No. But I was a senior, and Sal got me to take some courses at Nassau Community College, which I did. And my father was thrilled about that. So I did. I learned one course, two courses at night. So I go there and they're filling out these forms. Whitehall Street, I want to go airborne. It says, what's your education level? So I wrote Nassau Community College. Next thing I know, some Air Force student comes in. and says, yeah, I see you want to go airborne. I see you You know, went to Nassau Community College. You have a college degree. And I wasn't going to say, no, I don't. And it was a two-year college, but it was still a college. And he comes in and he says, listen, we're trying to recruit people to be a commando in the Air Force. Gives me this whole thing. It's a longer commitment than the Army, but I'm going to do all these great things. I said, is, is this guaranteed? Or he goes, you go to the same jump school as the Army jump school. You get your jump wings. He's giving me this whole sales pitch. And he sold me. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I mean, we didn't hear the word special operators at, at that time. Special forces was just being formed. That was 1962. And you never heard that stuff. But the way he described this commando operation that the Air Force was putting together was great. So I just switched right there at Whitehall Street and went into uh, the Air Force right then. How long were you in the Air Force? Four years. Okay, so when you get out, what's the first thing you do? Go to the University of South Carolina. So you stayed there. You never went back to New York. You can't say never went back to New York. No, of course I went back I meant- to New York. I didn't graduate high school, but I, in, the, in the military, I got a, a GED, general education degree, whatever. My education in the Air Force, you know, working to become a combat controller, which I didn't even know that name at that time. I thought it was Air Commando, Pathfinders. It was a, a redirection. So we went to all these different jump school, E&E, which is Escape and Evasion, which has now become SEER school, and it were all these different things. But I also went to a lot of technical training. I had to learn how to fix radios, how to bring in airplanes. But here I am, and I'm not doing real good because I didn't have an academic foundation for stuff that they're trying to teach me which I, I knew a lot of it because I, when I worked with Sal, we worked in the air conditioning and refrigeration repair business. I did that for two years. I understood the technical aspects of all these things, but it was very difficult. So the lesson I learned was, oh my God, I, I'm going to fail this. And if I fail this, I'm going to get some job doing something is not what I signed up for, not what I want to do. This is going to be tough. I had to double down, and luckily for me, some of these instructors were great. There was no way I was passing, so they recycled me. I ended up doing about a year at Keesler Air Force Base, and it wasn't easy, but I, you know, I learned a valuable life lesson. You get one chance at these things, and I never appreciated school whether I didn't like the teachers, there's always one or two that you do like, but there's four or five. It's your charm. Oh, yeah. Everyone who meets you, loves you, likes you. Well, some teachers, some yeah. people, but I got into a lot of trouble. And the bottom line is I had to survive. Some of the trouble I got into is because, listen, we didn't have any money. Right. There wasn't one time that I can remember the end of the month we paid the rent. It wow. didn't happen. I mean, I remember. And here was your dad working three jobs. Oh my God, he worked three jobs. And my did mother, your mom work? Yeah, her job was to spend every nickel before it could be. What put did to, she spend it on? Everything, everything. Obviously, there was food, but she'd send me to the grocery store when I was like six, seven years old, and say, "Go in there and buy a quart of milk and whatever. Tell them to put it on our account." And I'd go. Well, I'm a naive little kid. What do I know? After the second or third time of going there, and them like looking at you like. You don't have, how do you tell a six-year-old kid with a quart of milk, hey, kid, you can't take the milk, you can't get, so I did that several So times. you didn't have an account? Of course not. She account. would just and use you as a young boy yeah, to, 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 get, to get milk and bread. Try to, try to get me the hustle, and I remember one time, when I was probably even younger than that, that they came to collect the rent. The rent in Manhattan Beach 
was $40 a month. Now, I know this was a long time ago, and $40 was a lot of money. Any $5 is a lot of money if you don't have it. But I remember they came to the front door, and I started to say something to her. She put me in the closet and closed the door and told me to shut up, and she put me in the closet until they went away. It was tough. It was hard. And so my jobs, you know, you come home and you have money in your pocket. If I, I remember Ropage. If I came home with 2 or $3, dollars, it, it, it was gone. She would take it. So when I worked at Busy Bee Cleaners, next door was this Jewish delicatessen. They had these pickles. They had these hot dogs that were just the best. So what I would do is after I finished working at BZB, I'd go next door and get a hot dog because I can use my money for something. One time, I wanted a bicycle, and I wanted it because I knew that if I had a bicycle, I could deliver clothes a lot faster on a bicycle than just walking. So there was no way that I was ever going to get a new bike. There was no way I was going to get that from my parents. So I just asked her, can I just keep whatever I'm making? Her meaning your mom. Yeah. Whatever I'm making, can I just keep it for a, a week? I want to save up to buy a bike. And, you know, my father's there. I remember when did she check your pockets? She oh, knew day. how you... Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. If I, I came, whatever I made, I had it. That was it. That was... So you couldn't hide your money? Couldn't hide it. Why would I hide my money? I, I mean, it, it didn't make sense to me to hide the money. Well, if your mom's taking it every day. <laughs> you, you just didn't get around. That was what you had. That was your obligation. So you walk in the door and she says, give and me what you and, got. And I negotiate. Hey, can I keep a quarter? I want something tomorrow at lunch. Or it was a battle to keep any of what I made. But, you know, I'd get something back. But anyway, so I, I remember talking to the two of them. Give me some time. I need to save up. Maybe I could save up 10 or $15 or whatever. So she let me alone. For that week, but my dad he says, "What are you talking about?" Well, he didn't know what was going on. He's always complaining. I don't take his money. You know, I'm just sitting there. So that week, I'll never forget it. You know, I just take the money and I put it in the drawer. At the end of that week, I had twenty five dollars in a week. Nobody that we knew ever made a hundred dollars a week. I'm talking about my dad and his friends, seventy five, eighty dollars a week it was a good living doing. The kind of things that, you know, my, my world. So here I am. I'm a kid. We lived in the projects. I wasn't 15. I was probably 13 or 14. In a week, I had 25 bucks. My dad drove me down to Ralph Avenue to this bicycle store. There was a used bicycle. It was a kind of a red English racer, quote unquote. Up until then, if I wanted the bike, I went to the carriage room and stole a Schwinn. That's what we did. We'd steal bikes and ride the wheels off them, but I wanted my own bike that I could use for. Anyway, in one week, I saved $25, bought that bike. I had my own bike that I bought with my own money after just one week wow. working at BZB Cleaners. Wow. Kind of amazing. It blew me away. But how did I go from not graduating high school and paying the price in the military back to that? But that was the lesson that not going to school because I was trying to work. We needed the money. Let's put this in context. Please. I'm explaining that going in the military without that high school education, and certainly not the college education I claimed, without that, was devastating and I pay the price by almost not getting to the job I wanted, to be that air commander, that paratrooper. That was my dream. That's what I wanted. And I almost blew it because I didn't go to school. So I was explaining that the reason I didn't go to school was that I was working, trying to make money to survive. Got it. That nickel, that dime, that dime quarter, that was something that I had to have. And yeah, it was for the family. I did make it so that my mother took it out of my pocket, but I was doing it for that reason. Just so at the end of the month, I didn't have to hear the yelling and the screaming and the hysterics over not having the money. We never had the money. We can't pay the rent. We can't pay the bills. It was a horror story. Living in that environment, when you don't have money, when you're poor, that's a horrible place to be when you can't even afford the food. You can't afford anything. And yeah, you're right. She just blew it on diet doctors and whatever else that was just stupid and frivolous. So I, your I mom never worked? If she did, it was tokenism, but it just went away. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see it 
as if she went to the diet doctor and spent all this money getting injections for whatever or took, you know, went to get her hair done or whatever. We couldn't afford that stuff, but I didn't know the difference between what you had to spend and what have to. It was luxury. Yeah. I didn't understand the difference between that. It was the doctor. Right. So, and believe me, I got dragged down on the subway plenty of times going with her because there was certainly, when I was really little, there wasn't any money for babysitters and nobody had child care. There wasn't any such thing. Right. You did it or your friends did it, your neighbors did it, your relatives helped you. I mean, that was when people worked and got along with each other and helped each other. That was the community. And that was done, I want to use the word voluntarily, or it was just done because that's how people were. And it wasn't done, and the community wasn't a communist commune. That didn't become that kind of thing until the 60s came along. So that was something different. And then this whole thing that it takes a village, oh my God. I mean, what's that all about? It doesn't take a village. It takes people individually to be able to to have relationships, to have friends, to have people that commit to you. That takes a village, makes it sound like some communist commune thing, and it's just wrong. And at some point, I'm going to talk on this podcast about getting to success because one of the conversations that I've had recently is I asked the question, all these millionaires and billionaires in Beijing and Moscow, they all get to this place where you can you know, accumulate all this money. It's not just through capitalism. So all roads lead to Rome. Which road do we want to take? Which way do you want to go? Do you want to be able to find your own path and find your own road? be able to go through the woods and go around well you want to have to be on that road with red light stop signs and government checkpoints Mm. all along the way because that's the communist road that's the it takes a village road right the other road is it takes your friends and relationships it takes individual initiative and that's the capitalist road that's the road of freedom free from government control of your life And I don't think people understand that difference is very significant for you having the kind of life you want. Yep, you could become one of these very wealthy Russians, Chinese, whatever. You you can do that. But you're going to have to be, you know, part of the party, whether it's the communist or the Chinese Communist Party or the Russian Communist. You're going to have to be part of the apparatchik of that culture. Mm. We argue all the time. Oh, it's not so much different. You got to be part of. Well, it's very different. Anyway, growing up in the environment I grew up in, I understood the difference growing up in Brooklyn and neighborhoods where people did rely on each other, right. not the government. Yeah. And when you did Makes rely sense. on the government, you paid a big a big price. And you know, we'll discuss that some other time. Yeah. You ready to wrap this roll up? Yeah. I want people to see where you came from, get to know you from a different perspective. And then maybe next time we can talk about when you got out of the military and how you bought your first business and how you became the person that you are today. And what made you so, so passionate about politics and trying to make a change? I mean, not a lot of people, they say it, but they don't actually do it. And you've done it. You've accomplished so much and you've met so many people in politics and you've networked and you've just i mean running for mayor of san diego i mean that's pretty cool well so we can be, talk about all it, that it may be cool but i think the underlying factor is i've tried and you, you you're trying people say oh you, you, how do you try to pick something up you either pick it up or you don't pick it up and i get that but i think that there's something that's beneficial that's something that's good about trying. I think there's a lesson. The lesson I learned going in the Air Force and almost failing out of the technical schooling that I needed to have, I think it followed me all through life that I never did have that real underpinning of the foundation, the real education that comes 
I just feel like had I been able to stay in school, I, I don't know. I, Everything happens unfair. for a reason. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is it's not a coulda, shoulda, woulda in that I wish I did this. It's that my endeavors have been rewarding. My endeavors have been worthwhile. Yeah, I'm not I knocking agree. them. But when you know you get to a certain point, you can look back. If you don't say, wow, if I stepped over here instead of over there, it would have been a lot better. Hmm. Had I done this instead, it would have been a lot better. So I can look back and say that I took a path that was a much more difficult path than the one I could have taken. So yeah, it's not a woulda, coulda, shoulda thing. It's, hey, I could have actually done things in a much better way had I done them this way. Mm. If you don't learn the lesson, and here I am on the podcast talking to a lot of people out there, maybe people are listening and thinking, hey, what can I do to make sure that the next 10 years, if, if you're out there and you're 25 or 30, maybe there's things that you could do that I look back saying, maybe I should have done that because the 20 or 30 years after that might have been easier. Might have been. You don't know. Maybe not. My life, I follow my instincts. And I trust my gut. And I trust my instincts. But they're only as good as how much I know. And my knowledge comes from just a foundation of reading books. And I got that from my dad. Just reading everything. If I had a question about something that I was told in school, my dad didn't have time to sit with me and explain it to me. He'd tell me to read a book. Sometimes he tell me what book to read. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, today everyone says Google it. Yeah, Google it. Yeah, take the shortcut. <laughs> Google it. Nobody well, reads. And, you know, sometimes I read the classics. The classics yeah. illustrated. Yeah. There's a lot of times that I did read those books. But it wasn't a formal path. It wasn't a path that was laid out carefully to achieve a goal. Right. But it was good. And it, it enables me to reach back, not just on my own guess, it's more of an educated guess. And I have confidence in my ability to make those decisions. And when they're not right, I have the confidence that sometimes you do make the wrong decision and that's okay. So let's just keep going. So and instead of are, rolling to the right, you might have drifted to the left. No, I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think that. <laughs> no, it's just a figure no, of speech. No, 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 that, don't analyze it. No, I think in, and in my earliest times, my grandparents came here from Russia. They appreciated America and pass that appreciation on to me. At the earliest yeah, age I knew that this country was a gift that people could come to and that we were blessed. And it wasn't easy. It was never easy. It was just that you had the freedom to succeed. It was there. You, had, you could get the brass ring, but you had to work for it. But you could. And there was no place else in the world that's the one thing my grandparents, and especially my grandmother, always instilled in me that you, you could get there. Just get there. There's the road. Just get there. It worked. And I feel so badly that my dad died early and she lost her son when she was maybe in her 60s. And that's... How old was your dad when he passed? 44. And, and it's such a shame. And, you know, and she was... It was a tough thing. And I spent as much time with her as I could after that. In Russia, they didn't care about those kids' lives. I have a hard time painting the picture because it was, it was a hard picture to paint. Sad. Yeah, yes. but it wasn't sad. It was hard. It was difficult. It was a lot of things, honey. It was a lot of things, but it wasn't sad. Okay. When my dad died, that was sad. I'm just saying well, the struggles. Well, because it was so senseless. That's right. But the struggles that they lived through, every day was a victory. Every day you were challenged to get through the day and plan on the week and do all this, like a little, what today would be a coffee shop, a little restaurant. And when they come, and in those days, you know, it was like how much they got to collect their money every week. And I'm talking about the mobsters, the gangsters. And he wouldn't pay. In 1929, he was here, what, seven years, eight years? They find him dead in the morning. Boom. They, they just, they shot him. He was dead. Your grandfather? My grandfather. Wow. My, my, yeah, my dad was, he always said he was five years old. I'm not sure how old. Yeah, 1929, he was five years old. And my grandfather was, ironically, 44. 
I know. Oh, How my crazy is that? God. And my grandmother, at that point, they came here from Russia with three kids, and they had two more kids. So my grandmother was the quote-unquote single mom of five kids on the Lower East Side all by herself. And <laughs> that was just... What did she do to... Um... She hustled. She ran card games. She sold refreshments, quote-unquote, in bingo halls. Wow. Oh, yeah. My grandmother. <laughs> wow. She, that's a whole nother. That's all. Oh, yeah. Wow. She was, she that's was, they always tell the story of my, when my dad was, I forgot how, he was a little kid, and they busted up my grandmother's poker game and took her to jail, and she took my dad with her. She, they always used to joke about it and laugh about it. He'd say, Ma, if it wasn't for me, you'd still be in jail. And oh, that's said, funny. You wouldn't know what it was like. You wouldn't know nothing. You got the food on the table. That's all you cared about. What did you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, wow. It was, you really need to write that book. Yeah, I do. Yeah, You got day, some well. really amazing stories. Well, Your life was very interesting. Yeah, it still is. Well, it still is. Now yeah. I got well, you. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> I'm glad that everybody got to hear a little bit about you, something different on the podcast. And just a lot of people have no idea about your childhood. Well, a lot of people don't have any idea about anybody else except themselves. Right. It's, it's, we don't all write books. But it's fascinating. But, but the other part of that is when I talk about write books and go to a youth house on Spofford Avenue in the Bronx, right down the street from the Lincoln Hospital. And we talk about the book. My friend Chuck Zito wrote a book, Street Justice, about 10, 12 years ago. And I'm reading the book. It's a cool book. Growing up, and he grew up in Brooklyn. I go, wow, I thought you were from the Bronx. Well, I am. There he is as a kid. His mother comes out. He's playing in the fields outside where they lived in the Bronx. And she looks up and points to 1212 Spofford Avenue. The building is right there under where they lived. And says, if you don't watch yourself, that's where you're going to end up. Oh, <laughs> And funny. I remember I read the book. I get to that part. I called him up. I go, Chuck, just want you to know, when you were that little kid, your mother was pointing to youth house, and that's where you're going to end up? I was up there. <laughs> that's, she was me. That's who I was. She was pointing to me. That's funny. That, that is funny what comes out in Speaking books. Speaking of, what a small world, what right? What a small world. Wait, so you've known Chuck forever, right? A long time. Yeah, a long time. 30 so years. So two uh, years ago, what, three years ago, we go to Italy with 10 people. Yeah. And one of the couples that was there who live in New York that right, we had New met Rochelle. on the trip. That's right. Happened to be Chuck's neighbor. That's right. That's Lori, right. remember? Yeah. Lori, Lori Brooks. Was, yeah, I was, yeah. we were like in shock. Yeah. We were like, she's it's like, next, oh yeah, I was I grew up neighbor. next to him. Yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah small world, right? Small, very small world. Yeah. Anyway, that's okay. The book. Well, that's my book story right there. We're wrapping it up <laughs> for today. That was a great podcast. I was. We're fascinated. still rolling right, right? We're still rolling, we're still right. rolling right. Yeah, you got to roll right. Rolling is only one way. It's the right way. Yeah. That's it. All right, babe. all right, guys. Take care. See you, honey. Subscribe to Roll Right Radio. Subs- yeah. Follow subscribe. us on Please. Facebook and Instagram. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio Podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.